0: You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, Deepening Your Practice. It's September 24th, 2020 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. And we're going to be talking about compassion practice for friends and family family members tonight. Um, I talked a lot about uh, Dunbar Numbers last time and I still think of it uh, organizing the practice in that way. The traditional practice is always organized around um, self and then teachers, mentors, and benefactors then uh, friends and family, then neutral people, then difficult people, and then all sentient beings. When I went to Myanmar and was sitting with uh, uh, Indiga Sayadaw, he organized it slightly differently than that. Um, he started with easy people. He said that that was in some way related to teachers, mentors, and benefactors, but he noticed in Western students that Uh, teachers, mentors, and benefactors were not revered in the same way that they were in the East. Uh, And that so uh, often the relationship with that particular group wasn't easy. Uh, And what you were really looking for is somebody who when you think of the person, the mind just naturally inclines that way. So he described that as a simple relationship where when you think of the person, the mind naturally inclines toward, in this case, compassion practice. Compassion practice is turning toward the suffering experience of someone else and being willing to hold that experience. Uh, In Buddhism, that narrow focus is around just the suffering of, just the suffering aspects, whereas in English, compassion, uh, co means to share and passion means feeling. So to share all feelings. We think of compassion as an empathetic experience um, in the West, um, and there's different models for this. Uh, I, I always talk about the the three uh, kinds of empathy, but um, the last time I did a search, that's fallen out of favor, and now it's a five or six-layered um, uh, approach to empathy, but I find that it gets too complex, uh, and for our purposes, uh, Uh, The three uh, levels is enough. The first one is a visceral response to the the suffering experience of somebody else, either physical or emotional pain. In witnessing in that, there's a whinginess or an automatic uh, startle response to that. The second level is where you can look at somebody and read their facial expressions and their body language and assign an internal meaning to them that the external presentation Uh, indicates to you and then the third level is where you actually have an empathetic experience that you feel in your body so compassionate empathy and in buddhism that's really the one that we mean compassionate empathy touching into the experience of the other person and feeling it in your body Normally, what we do in order to tell whether somebody is telling us the truth or not, or whether their presentation is authentic, is we compare the second and third level, and if there's a match, then we think that they're telling us the truth. And so their external presentation matches the felt sense of them internally, our our felt sense of them internally. But this isn't a good system. Uh, uh, and, what you'll find in, in many people, in the early conditioning that they had, uh, they split off the part of matching it to what people actually do, because the inconsistency is in the in the caregivers uh, prevented them from having that uh, final comparison. It was impossible to maintain the image of the good parent uh, if you if you compared what they said to what they did, and so children begin to simply. Uh, split off the, what they do uh, from what they say they're going to do or what they say is happening. And so part of this repair is really, uh, or part of this uh, developing of the practice of compassion is to, uh, if that's been split off, to return it. So the final uh, uh, empathetic experience is comparing what somebody's presentation is both internally and externally to what they do, and to make sure that there's a good match there as well. So when we talk about an easy person, all of those things are in place. The relationships are usually simple, and we're able to just come into that feeling state. Um, we never actually, uh, in, in Myanmar, uh, worked directly with a group that he called Teachers, Mentors, and Benefactors. It was the easy person. In Asia, they typically start with themselves because um, the the structure of family systems there is oriented more around the family group than it is about the individual. And so they pull the self out of group identification into self-identification as one of the prerequisites for doing the practice. But here we tend to be divided already from our identification with the family group. And so that practice can create a a sense of separateness or isolation in in the practice, which is an unintended consequence of that. We talked last week about the close group um, that uh, is different from the easy group Uh, in in that that's the group that's immediately closest to you. Uh, In um, Dunbar parlance, that would be an A or a B relationship, above the line, people that you tell everything to. And so when we're focusing on friends and family, we're talking about the next group out, people that you tell some things to. One of the things that's important to understand about compassion practice is that We, uh, as the compassionate container that's um, uh, coming to the suffering experience of someone else, needs to be able to emotionally regulate the other person, to be able to provide care for the other person, and not be dysregulated by the experience of doing that to the point that we're no longer able to provide care. Um, And so what we want to really do is be able to regulate this pretty well so that when we need to withdraw from giving care because it's... Overwhelming us, we can do that. So this is part of the practice, knowing what, uh, and being able to monitor your capacity for, for holding the space. And then when you find that you can't hold the space, disengaging from holding the space. Sometimes we can feel that we need to hold the space, even when we're being overwhelmed by the experience of holding the space and then get completely dysregulated by the process of doing that and then not be of use As a compassionate uh, container for the other person, but also uh, being in a a situation where we ourselves are dysregulated and may need help from somebody else to uh, bring our our own internal experience back into balance. Friends and family members uh, uh, is an interesting. grouping, particularly when it's in the, the next circle out from the intimate uh, circle, some people do hold family members in the intimate circle, but many people do not. I it, it, um, probably, I'm going to guess that it's not a surprise uh, to many of you that family members are held in the D group, uh, which is the group that you really don't say anything to except when you show up on holidays three times a year. Um, so um, I do have a bias in this area around family members, which is if you can pick, can, can uh, make those relations uh, work well, that, that it's probably a good idea to do that. We do develop a lot of conditioning around uh, early experiences with our caregivers, however the family constellation might be. In our society now, there's a wide range of possibilities in terms of what those family constellations are made of. But also to understand that if you can't make those repairs with the family system and, you, and you're better off not doing it, that that's also one of the possibilities that needs to be considered. and that You need to be able to form uh, a functioning uh, experience that really supports you, and and when we talk about that, we're really talking about the the secure base that you're developing that supports your exploration, what's actually meaningful to you, and that that when you organize these groups and and that you begin to support them so that they'll be around you, that the focus is really on how they uh, support your solo exploration in a way that makes Uh, are you capable really of going after the things that really have meaning and finding them so that your life is enriched by that process and that they don't act in a way that is detrimental to that or in some way prevent that exploration from happening. We see uh, in attachment um, conditioning how Good enough parenting produces a sense of security, a sense of secure attachment, and that uh, a sense of having a real safety net so that you feel uh, free, if I can use a a juggling metaphor, to take on the high wire uh, in your exploration and really go for things that have deep meaning to you, knowing that if you fall, that 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 group is there to catch you, the net. and so secure people do tend to have family members in that, in that uh, grouping. Um, um, and, and, and also some people who have insecure attachment have also a, a, a connection with, a, with family members, but it tends to be more of an enmeshment and, and often acts as a limitation toward that kind of freedom in exploring. The idea with exploring, of course, is that you're going after things that you find meaningful. That that they don't have to be meaningful to anyone else, just what you find meaningful. And that uh, enriches your experience of being alive. Uh, And often, uh, particularly with family members, there can be a sense that you should be directing uh, your exploration toward things that the family group thinks is meaningful or valuable, whether or not it has meaning to you, particularly. And so uh, I am also biased in this uh, area in advocating that you actually pursue the things that are meaningful to you and that you can bring your unique sensibility to and uh, and express it in that, in the way that you explore. Friends are different from family in the sense that you can choose who they are and, and who supports you. Um, the C group of friends is different from the B group of friends in that it's, it's less uh, regular and sometimes more spontaneous. They might be work colleagues or uh, people that are engaged uh, in the ordinary activities of your life that you see regularly. Uh, in Dunbar's research, he said that uh, if you have an A relationship, an A relationship is somebody you see on a daily or every other day basis that you take care of in person. And the main difference between an A relationship and a B relationship with somebody that you see frequently uh, every few days or every, every week that you see in person and take care of is that in an A relationship, the demands of the relationship are more important than each person's individual exploration and if the choice is between satisfying your uh, individual exploration or maintaining the the couple relationship, you maintain the couple relationship. In a a B relationship, your personal exploration has priority over maintaining uh, the relationship. An example of that would be you get a job that you really want except it's a thousand miles away and you inform your B's that you've decided to accept the job and that you're moving and that will affect the relationship. Whereas with an A relationship, you'd have to talk to the person that you are partnered with and you'd have to agree on whether or not uh, you wanna move uh, a thousand miles uh, to maintain the relationship. Those people you tell everything to and what we mean is that you tell them your experience of the present moment in a way that's communicating an authentic uh, uh, experience. But in C relationships that you see say monthly or every few weeks, uh, you don't have to tell them everything. Uh, And that group is much larger. So the B group in in Dunbar's research was between two and five and the uh, C group is 30 to 40 in the research is that, that typically the number. The reason that you wanna maintain the C group, of course, is that's where you get your Bs and As from. So the bigger that group is, the, more, the easier it is to replace um, the more intimate relationships because as, as you know, uh, I'm sure everything is impermanent and everything changes. And so those relationships can also change. If you do find people that are really good at supporting you and taking care of you, you really want to take care of those relationships so that you can have them for a long time because they're hard to come by, but they also, also have to know that they'll change and that you'll likely have to replace them. And so you need to have uh, a group of people that, that you could draw from to do that. In compassion practice, Uh, formal compassion practice, what we're doing is making the intention to hold the suffering experience of someone else because uh, if we don't train ourselves to do that, most of the time, our conditioning will cause us to recoil from the empathetic experience of somebody else's pain. And in recoiling from them, often what we communicate is, is a rejection of them because we can't tolerate it. And so what we're really trying to do is train ourselves to be capable of uh, encountering uh, pain uh, or discomfort that somebody else is suffering and not turn away from it. One of the interesting things about compassion practice is that uh, we are highly moral beings and we tend to really quickly and automatically judge people for their uh, intentions and actions that might lead to their own suffering. And in compassion practice, we still have to open and hold the suffering experience of someone else, even if we think that their intentions and actions are causing the suffering, and that they would be better off if they made different decisions than the ones that they've made that have led to the suffering that they're experiencing. And so this can be one of the more challenging aspects of compassion practice. Um, I do find it's an interesting time uh, because the intentions and actions of many people I find to be morally problematic. uh, And it's very hard to imagine um, holding that suffering experience. It does tend to produce in me a feeling of helplessness uh, I think that uh, when I consider uh, some of the, the conduct that I witness in the media, um, that I that I have really nothing to offer uh, in terms of being able to help them uh, behave in a way that is less harmful. Um, so. There is that also, that aspect in terms of the willingness to hold the suffering experience of others. How do you hold the suffering experience of someone that you find morally unfit uh, and not become uh, rejecting or, or distancing to them? can you make the obligation that they become ethically fit before you're willing to hold the uh, the compassionate experience of them? There is no real instruction in in Buddhist cosmology where that would be the case. You have to be able to hold the experience anyway. But then you do have to be able to hold the experience anyway, and if you find that the the experience is overwhelming and that that you're then unable to do it, then it is still better to disconnect from it. So, this is the conundrum of it. Um, so, you bring your capacity for compassion, which is this skill set, you attune to somebody. Uh, attunement is, an, is also something that's interesting to pay attention to. Attuning means that I put my attention on you and you can see that that's where it is and you put your attention on me and I can see that that's where the attention is. Um, Most of us who live in urban environments have gotten pretty good at masking our our, uh, emotional expressions uh, externally. So that second level of empathy can be challenging. And we also have the uh, the need to regulate the experience of attunement in order to be compassionate and hold that experience. So uh, that also puts in into play the capacity to sense in the first place. The human eye can't resolve uh, detail well enough at a distance of greater than three feet or so to really be able to read subtle expressions in people's face. We get a general sense of it, but we don't really have a lot of information. Once you get to be within three feet of somebody, you can begin to read micro-expressions of the person and and get a sense, uh, a a much more intimate sense of what the other person is experiencing so you have more, more data to develop an experience of them. But really to have an unfiltered view of what's happening with somebody else, you have to get close enough to be able to read the fluctuations of their irises. Um, If you can't do that, then uh, people can mask their internal experience uh, in their external presentation and it's hard really to tell what's happening. In order to be able to read somebody's irises fluctuating, you will have to been trained to do that by your caregiver, which means you would have had to have good enough care as a child to be able to do that or have encountered along the way uh, an intimate uh, emotional relationship with somebody that let you get close enough that you could learn to do it by experiencing them. How many people do you let get within a foot of your face to stare into your eyes uh, so that they can read the fluctuations of your irises which you cannot mask? And then you begin to understand that even if you're not conscious of of these kinds of uh, behaviors, most of us do it. Uh, There's very few people that could get that close to me without some automatic defense system arising in me to keep them at at a distance. And notice how you get gradually closer to people so that if you're intimately involved with somebody, and you're used to bringing your body close enough to them where they can see that, then there has to be some degree of of relationship there, some degree of safety there to do it. Otherwise we're naturally defensive. So we make the empathetic connection to the other person and then uh, in receiving the the data back, we feel them and then we bring our emotional regulation capacity to that and then it's, it's fed back to them through the empathetic exchange and this back and forth of experience of each other is the thing that becomes regulating. And so if you are not dysregulated and they are, you bring this compassionate container to them, hold the experience of it, of their suffering and uh, help them regulate that through the empathetic exchange of more regulated experience. Um, Have you noticed that there's not a shortage of suffering out there in the world? (laughs) I sometimes think because it's COVID times and I just sit at my house and it's very nice here. I mean, tonight the sunset was actually spectacular. Uh, This giant, you know, blazing orange globe and then um, what's left of the smoke sort of turning into this wonderful burnt orange and, and then uh, it gets dark enough and then the, the, the lights everywhere begin. And that sort of, um, it's almost like a twinkling. Um, you know, a, a tree blows or something and the, the light's intermittent, it's beautiful. But it, it also means I rarely encounter anybody uh, in person anymore a couple of times a week, uh, maybe one or two people. Um, they, they put out a, a, a calculation of your, your COVID risk. And uh, I'm in the category that's 90 times more likely to die from COVID than a 20-year-old, which gives you pause in terms of how reckless you want to be. I mean, at, uh, at the age that I am, uh, reckless is also a sort of qualified term anyway. <clears throat> so you move through the world and you encounter people who are suffering, and then you have the choice about whether or not you're going to open to the experience of that suffering and offer the, the compassionate response that's ca- that you might be able to do in that moment or you make the decision not to. And we do uh, want you to be completely free in terms of how that happens, that you could, you're you free to choose to be compassionate or not be compassionate. Often we are, we grow up with conditioning that su- suggests an obligation that we be one way or another, and this is really coming from a place of total freedom to choose uh, what to do in the situation. It is unlikely that you'll be able to relieve all of the suffering in the world. And it's uh, maybe even unlikely that you're able to relieve all of the suffering uh, of somebody in your family or in your friend group. In Tibetan practice, the equanimity practice is first and in the Theravada practice, it's last. Um, But there is this understanding that comes from doing the equanimity practice that each of us is responsible for our intentions intentions, and actions, each of us create our own karmic threads Uh, and uh, other people cannot really take that from us. Even if they wanted to and we offered it to them, they wouldn't be able to relieve us of of our own, of the consequences of our own actions. And this is also something that's um, useful to begin to attempt to explore, understand um, the nature of uh, karma um, you probably all know the story of the, the farmer and the horse, good luck, bad luck, who knows? Yes, everybody familiar with it? Um, the reason that intention and, and action is, is, the, is the pairing because we are incapable really of completely understanding the, the outcome of an, an action that we take. Um, Ray uh, Kurzweil, who is a confabulist uh, um, who uh, who thinks um, that we'll all be much better off when we're virtual uh, and we just upload our consciousness into a computer and then can uh, live through endless variations of experience I, I, that brings me to to, the, to, the, to to an understanding of how deeply attached I am. To living in this particular body. <laughs> um, but he said that if you took all the known matter in the universe and converted it into computing machines, that it would take a thousand years to calculate the distance of one molecule, molecule through an inch of water. So how are we to know the outcome of each of the actions that we take? with enough certainty that we, we can always take the skillful action that will always lead to the least amount of pain for ourselves and for other people. We actually cannot know that. And so we make the intention, um, we begin to train ourselves uh, uh, to be ethical in the way that we approach things. And we take the actions and then we see what the outcome is and then uh, goal correct toward this the place that we're heading How do we know that the action that we take will, will result in a, in a positive, compassionate outcome when we're experiencing someone else's suffering? How do we know the causes of the suffering that they, they're experiencing? One of the things he also said was that uh, your smartphone could probably calculate the results of the movement of the, of the molecule through an inch of water but you couldn't uh, successfully predict where it would have been. And so what you'll also notice is that we all like to make up stories about why things happened. If you've done this instead of that, how the outcome might be different. And so uh, this understanding of the nature of karma and and really uh, understanding that you take the action uh, with the intention that it come out well, and then you have to see what happens and then you have to go correct. And that you're in this flow constantly without too much attachment to what happens because it's so unpredictable and so unknowable so that it's this opening up into that experience. I'm taking in the data, I'm formulating an intention and then I'm taking an action based on that. And then I see what happens, taking that data, reformulate, Uh, take an action and move forward. This uh, also matches pretty well in terms of how secure people tend to explore. Uh, And it also is reflected in how insecurely attached people explore differently than that. Based on that understanding, um, in dismissing adults, there's a kind of pseudo-exploration where they they evaluate what has high value in, in, the, in the social group that they're in and they tend to go for those goals. Uh, and it, it is really whether it has meaning to them particularly or not because as long as they can get the high value position, they have the resources to, to satisfy their needs in a more contractual way which is, tends to be how they operate preoccupied people tend to not explore they tend to attach themselves to other people's exploration they like the proximity more than uh, the exploration so they don't explore they just tag along with other people disorganized people tend to be alone that the choice is to be alone even though if you're more toward the uh, preoccupied side of disorganization it's a it's a dissatisfaction in the in the being alone and in the uh, avoidant or dismissing side of disorganized attachment. The preference is to be alone, even though it's there's a, a suffering component that goes with that. So if you are making a compassionate response to somebody, you have to take them in and you have to, to uh, be present for the experience of how you're attempting to help them so that you're actually informing the intention and action, skillfully meeting them rather than uh, attempting to control or, or uh, subtly blame. The near enemy, of course, of compassion is pity. It's, and it's a sympathetic experience. It, it isn't one that involves empathy. And it's, it's an it's a, a almost hierarchical judgment of, I'm up here and you're down there, and I'm taking pity on you and I'm helping you from that uh, sympathetic place, which often leads to a substantial mismatch in terms of how you respond and then cruelty is the far enemy. Have you ever um, attended to uh, the capacity for your own cruelty and how that looks, Um, if somebody is demanding? So you're walking down the street and and there's a completely disheveled and uh, smelly, deranged uh, person demanding that you give them something, how do you respond to that automatically? Are you capable of opening and holding the experience of that or not holding the experience? Or do you notice that sometimes the mind turns to just a knee-jerk impulse of cruelty to defend yourself from that experience? When somebody close to you asks for something, do you experience it as intrusive or do you are naturally inclined to open toward it? So this is all of the territory of compassion practice. These are all of the things that you want to begin to pay attention to so that you can really recognize what your uh, conditioning is around that and so that you can begin to have agency and opening uh, and holding a compassionate space. In intimate relationships, this is really important as a way of, explo- uh, of supporting y- your other person's exploration. Um, they go out into the world, they get completely knocked sideways, they come rushing back to you, and they, they want you to help them And so you open uh, your capacity for compassion and you help them re-regulate. And then once they're re-regulated, you encourage them to continue exploring. That's that whole cycle of compassion. But if they come back and they're discombobulated and they keep knocking you sideways and you can't hold the experiences, it's almost unconscious that the, the tendency then is to begin to recommend that they limit their exploration in a way that doesn't cause you to feel so dysregulated and so helpless to help them. And that in some sense is that that expression of cruelty, but to deny somebody else support for their exploration because you can't hold the experience of that. Is that all making sense? So in the formal practice, of course, we sit down and we, we attempt to hold the mind state of compassion, and uh, really what this uh, formal practice is, is the development of the willingness to do this and to not have this reflexive response of, of rejecting the suffering experience of the other person and not putting conditions on uh, what, uh, what the causes of their suffering experiences and what will attend to, and then really developing a a huge capacity for that. The bigger the capacity you have for compassion, actually, the better it is for the person that you're relating to, because they can take more risks in their exploration and come back and and you'll be able to catch them. And then hopefully they'll be able to develop their own capacity for compassion so that you have that support as well to go into the world and, and explore and knowing that you have this safety net if you need it. I am not, and I hope I'm not suggesting that you, you become reckless uh, and take uh, uh, boneheaded risks in terms of what you do because you know somebody will catch you. That's not what I'm suggesting, that you're really going for things that have real meaning to you, that are worth pursuing. Um, and then you have this, this inner circle that you can share that with, but also this larger friend group and family that is appreciative of, of what you do and, and uh, delighted that you share it with them. Um, which you know, if you have somebody who's really good at exploring and really good at explaining what they've explored, you get all of that information and richness and you don't have to go do that exploration yourself unless you want to because you, you have already the information, the discovery about it. Any questions about all that? And then we can do some practice. Okay, so go ahead and take your meditation posture. how did that go? So everyone succumbed to cruelty and spent the whole time imagining horrible things. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> It is a, an interesting time we're living in. <laughs> or alternatively, everyone got so concentrated, you're all in an, in an all altered state and it's going to take you a few minutes to come back. <laughs> um, hey, George. Uh huh. I noticed that this was at least my mind was much more um, um was much more lost like constantly, and it's basically a matter of bringing back to remember to say the phrases, um, which is surprising because um, with uh, loving kindness is actually pretty like uh this this felt much harder or like it seems like the mind is much. More interest in escaping than loving kindness is that because it's like uh, the the reaction of suffering makes it harder. Is that what causes? I I would think that yes. The mind is the untrained mind is naturally inclined to immediately pull away from the experience of suffering. Um, and it's, and also we're priming this for an empathetic experience. So um, that's also something that can be challenging. Yeah, it's much more exhausting. Mm-hmm. good. I do really uh, want to emphasize how important it is for uh, being able to sustain interpersonal relationships that you develop a strong capacity for this because you'll you'll end up either consciously or unconsciously limiting uh, your uh, the people close to you exploration if you can't tolerate it, and uh not everybody would is willing to go along with that so it can create turmoil in the relationships. Conversely, if you have a great capacity for compassion and, and they can come rushing to you and whatever they come with you can handle, uh, they become very uh, devoted to you in a way. They become devoted to, their, to uh, how you can help them. <laughs> Just a good thing. Someone else? Um, On Saturday, I have uh, a day long on uh, level one. So we're doing the second of the three day longs on level one. You haven't uh, touched into the attachment material, and that's interesting to you. And then the following Saturday, I'm doing the the third of the um, day longs on level one. So it's an explanation of attachment and how to practice with meditation um, to help... uh, if you're insecurely attached, move towards security. Um, We will do a a couple of weeks after that, a a meditation and attachment for relationships, which is uh, a day long on talking about the skill set of securely functioning relationships or collaborative relationship skills uh, that support um, being, uh, one of the things that's interesting about attachment is that you can shift your relationships into secure functioning relationships, even if you don't do the deep work of uprooting insecure attachment and move that to security. And it, it actually is very useful in terms of doing the deeper practice, because if you can get your relationships to function pretty, pretty securely, then you have that base to then uh, explore how to shift uh, the deep conditioning toward more security. going to be doing a level two class starting I think in November. There is scholarships available for that so if you want to do it uh, check it out. Um, The class is limited to 12 people so uh, it may fill up. And then I'm also doing a retreat the last week of December uh, to the beginning of January so the 28th until uh, the um, uh, 2nd of January. We do also have scholarships available for that. That's a virtual retreat, so uh, uh, take a look at that. That's limited to 24 people and it is filling up, so consider it. Um, I offer the classes here on a Donna basis. is the Pali word for generosity, so I offer the teachings freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation if you have the resources to do so help support me and also the work that MetaGroup is doing. I put the link for that in the chat, but it's also on the website or was in the email that you got if you've signed up for this class. Uh, Any amount is appreciated. uh, And if you aren't resourced and can't do it, that's also totally fine. We're happy to have you come practice with us. Any last thoughts? George, is the Saturday um, day long, is that, do you welcome drop in on that? Yeah, totally. Okay, cool, thank you. Yeah, if you missed one of them uh, and you, you, put, you sign up for it, you'll be invited to a Dropbox that has the recordings for the other days. The day longs, um, it, there's uh, three segments of the day long, nine to 11 and then 1115 to 115 and then two to four. So there's a different topic in each of the of the two hour periods. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Bye.